0: Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days." Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there, were, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea.
1: All right. So you guys probably noticed uh, I'm on, right? Sweet. So, uh, you guys probably noticed uh, we've got a weird text, right? Uh, And it's kind of a long one. So, why don't I (laughs) pray? Pray for our time, uh, and then we'll get started, okay? Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for this afternoon. Uh, For my brothers and sisters uh, in this room, uh, sitting outside, streaming online, uh, we're just grateful for the opportunity that we have to open up your word, uh, to be fed uh, by your spirit, and uh, to be shaped, molded more into the likeness of Christ. Uh, I pray, God, that uh, the words of my mouth, that the meditation on all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. You are God. You are a rock. You are our Redeemer. So it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Why? The question why is a question that, that gnaws at us from an early age and just never seems to go away, right? It's one of the first questions we learn how to ask, why? Right? Like, I've got, uh, I've, I've got a toddler, and he's always asking why. He says, can I have gumbledum, which is how he says bubblegum, right? Can I have gumbledum? Uh, and I say, no, dude, he's three years old. I'm like, no, no, you, you can't. And he says, why? And, of course, I give him a proper explanation, I say, because I said. And then he goes, Why? And I explain, well, because, you know, it's, it's bad for you if you, if you swallow it, and you're, you're not big enough to not swallow it. And he says, why? And I say, you know, it's, it takes a longer time to digest, and I think potentially it's bad for you. I don't know. Like, that's just what I was taught, right, when I was growing up. And so, like, the, this question, why, just is with us from a young age. And the older that we get, the question sort of matures a little bit, but it doesn't really change. We still ask why. Why am I so depressed? Why am I still single? Why can't I have children? Why don't I make more money? Why is my spouse so difficult to live with? Uh, that, that's not a personal question, just so you know. But why, why, won't, why won't this pandemic go away? Why do those countries have to go to war? We're often not satisfied by the answers that we find, and the the deeper that we go, we find that the more layers you dig down into why, the more we are faced with unsettling truths. The book of Revelation is written by the Apostle Paul, or sorry, the Apostle John, to a group of suffering Christians And they're Christians that are wrestling with the bigger why questions of the time. Why are we social outcasts? Why are we being denied our safety? Why are people refusing to trade with us to do business with Christians? Why are our children therefore forced to starve? Why are some of our fathers being imprisoned? Why are some of our leaders being killed and martyred? Why is there so much persecution against us? How deep into those questions are we willing to dig? Why? Someone might raise their hand at these Christians, these first century Christians, as they're asking those questions, someone might raise their hand and say, oh, I know the answer, right? I know the answer, it's because of Roman hostility. That's why. But then you could ask, why is that happening? Well, because they see Christians as a threat to their power and influence. But why, why do they see that? Well, it's because they have a difference in religious worlds. I mean, you could keep asking why, why, why over and over again, and on it goes. And so, what is it then? What is at the center of our wise? What is the deepest foundational layer of the wise? What stands behind all the other causes? When God's people suffering, what stands there? The answer is in a text we just read in Revelation 12. Now, you might think that that's, this is weird for us to go into Revelation 12 because if you were here last week, you know that Revelation 11 kind of seemed like the end, right? It seemed like the end where the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of God and of Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And if John stopped right there, you'd be like, all right. That's the end of the story. No more questions. But now, we turn the page, and there's still more written. We're just barely more than halfway through the book of Revelation. And the reason, which you might remember when we did our sort of intro to this book at the beginning, is that Revelation is uh, just, it's almost like looking at the same story through different angles, through different perspectives, through different windows. And so when Revelation 11 ended, that was the end of looking at things through that window. And now in Revelation 12, we're looking at a similar period of time from a different vantage point. And the point for this different vantage point in Revelation 12 is that John's going to describe something to us that has not clearly been addressed yet. He's going to dig deeper into why God's people suffer and the big reasons behind that. Maybe you've wondered this question too. Maybe you're somebody who, you're a follower of Jesus, you love Jesus, you love the church, and you've wondered why does the church throughout history hit these roadblocks again and again and again? Why are Christians often hated and ridiculed by by outsiders? Or why does the church sometimes even face opposition from within? Like when the gospel is replaced by other priorities, when gossip, division, political strife begins to tear the local church apart, where resentment begins to tear Christian marriages apart, you might wonder, why has it always been this way? When you peel back all the layers, you see that underneath the sovereign hand of God is the reality that we have a very real spiritual enemy. We see the reality of our spiritual enemy. And he's pictured here in Revelation 12 as an enraged dragon. This is the devil himself, and that's what the next two chapters are about, Revelation 12 and 13, but we're just going to look at that first part today. Revelation chapter 12, here's the big idea in our text, I'll give it to you right now, is that there is a very real enemy who causes very real suffering, but he cannot overcome us because he has already been overcome. Let's look at our text now. Here's point number one the enemy's rage against the messiah the enemy's rage against the messiah verse one says and a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars and so john's vision continues now in Revelation chapter 12 and he sees this woman. She's clothed with the sun, which I don't even know how you picture that, right? Like that's how magnificent this image is. She's clothed with the sun. She's got 12 stars in her crown, the moon at her feet, which by the way, these descriptors are in the Jewish tradition uh, were a depiction of Israel in the Old Testament. And so this woman here is a a metaphor for the nation of Israel. She's a metaphor for the covenant people of God. Verse 2, it says, She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads, seven diadems. What is this? Right? Right? Now, remember, in, in apocalyptic literature, when you see numbers, when you see images and, and beasts and animals, they often symbolize something else. We've already established that the dragon uh, symbolizes the devil. Why is it that he has many heads? The reason is he has many heads, specifically seven heads, is that tells us that there is a fullness to this evil, Remember in the book of Revelation the number 7 means fullness. So there is a fullness to this evil. In other words, we can see that evil has a reach everywhere and in everything. Another word way to say that is that evil is both personal and it's systemic. It's both now and it's generational. And because of that, you can't, you can't always solve evil through simple means. You can't eliminate racism by just educating people. You can't eliminate poverty through welfare. You can't eliminate violence and aggression by dealing with mental illness. If you, that doesn't mean that, that those things don't help in some way, but if you think that you can simply deal with those things uh, through those means, then you don't full understand the, the, the fullness of evil. Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart, even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. (coughs) And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an uprooted, small corner of evil. He says that line of good and evil (coughs) passes through every heart. Evil doesn't just exist out there. Evil also exists in here. The dragon's also described as many crowned. (coughs) Sorry, can someone figure out where I left my water? Um, (coughs) The dragon's also many crowned. This tells us, thanks, Ray. This tells us that that we see evil even in places of power, right? How many of us have seen that? We see evil in thrones and in White Houses. We see evil can be present with landlords and with lawmen. Not just the crooks in the streets, but even the clergy in some churches. And in the Old Testament, dragons portrayed kingdoms and empires. Pharaoh himself was depicted as a dragon in the book of Ezekiel. And our text continues in verse 4. It says, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Dude, that's a gnarly verse, right? You got this dragon who's got a tail big enough to sweep down the stars of heaven. He he stands before the woman as she's about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he would devour it. I mean, dude, that's a graphic scene. Right? That's a terrible scene. That's that's the point. That's the point of John's description. He's describing this terrible graphic scene so that it's seared in our minds so that we we can't get rid of it. He's pointing to the pervasiveness of evil. There's a recent poll that said that about half of Americans believe in the existence of a devil, of demons, or some supernatural personal force of evil. What that tells us is that half of the nation probably thinks we're nuts, right? Probably thinks Christians are nuts. Like most people don't even believe there's such a a, a concept As objective evil. Like according to expert philosopher Susan Neiman, this this line of thinking that there is such a thing as objective evil. She says this line of thinking (coughs) where people are, are critical of that and skeptical of that has been going on for hundreds of years. Until, she points out, until suddenly the atrocities at Auschwitz in World War II before then, philosophers had a hard time agreeing on whether evil actually existed or not. And that's because secularists, they need to come up with some natural reason for why things happen. And so they, 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 they stay away from the word evil because the word evil implies some sort of supernatural origin. And so they turn to sociology or psychology, or to circumstances to explain bad things away. And so here we are, almost a century later after World War II, and we've lost, again, I think, the ability to speak in moral categories. That's why you hear talk about preferences instead of character. Values instead of virtue. You hear talk about how God is not a God of objective, holy love, but he's painted as sort of like this, this mushy, romantic love. Satan isn't real or dangerous. He's just a figment of our imaginations. And this mentality, this mentality makes the world a dangerous place because suddenly the categories have disappeared, but the reality hasn't. When you actually take a moment to sort of zoom out, take a step back and get this broad perspective of the world's tragedies, or to see the scope of suffering that goes on in our world, then suddenly we become more okay with speaking in categories outside our natural explanations. And so when terrorists attack our nation, we say that's that's evil. When those in power exploit the vulnerable underneath them, we call that evil. When the vulnerable are taken advantage, we call that evil, wicked, maybe even demonic. When you have school shootings or stabbings like we had this week, we have no problem calling that evil. That's because it very much is. You see, naturalism alone doesn't give us enough categories to make sense of this world that we live in. Andrew Doblanco says, the world of the devil is everywhere, but nobody knows where to find him. We live in the most brutal century in human history, but instead of stepping forward to take the credit, the devil has rendered himself invisible. He's got a point there. Like... Evil is something that we hesitate to name, but as Christians we, we need to understand evil. And if there is a personal supernatural force behind evil, then we need to recognize that. We need to own that. We need to not be afraid to name that. We need to understand evil as Christians because we need it for our prayers and our conversations. We need it to direct our efforts for justice and for righteousness. And Revelation, When Revelation shows us how deep evil is, we can see how much more glorious and how much more beautiful God's salvation in Christ is. See, the Bible, it addresses this head on. It addresses this, this head on. It tells us that in addition to the effects of sin on our world, With the brokenness of our world, there are also spiritual forces at play behind the scenes. Personified by this dragon here in Revelation 12. John's almost like pulling off the the Scooby mask, right? Just pulling back the curtain to show us who's really behind all the suffering and persecution of the believers at that time. And so Jesus is going to come from the woman, that he's the child that is spoken of by this woman who's giving birth, which is uh, a way of saying that Jesus, the Messiah, will belong to the covenant community that the woman represents. And what we see is that this, this enemy, this devil, has tried to thwart the plan of God ever since from the beginning, He's been after the Messiah ever since the beginning. Like when God created humanity, he made Adam and Eve perfectly in his image and likeness. And what did Satan do? He tempted them. He tempted them to doubt God, doubt his goodness, doubt his beauty. And they gave in. God makes a promise that he's gonna preserve them, that he's going to save them. He eventually makes a covenant to Abraham that through his descendants the world will be blessed. Some generations later, we read through the story of Moses that Egypt enslaved God's people. Satan again is at work behind the scenes through Pharaoh. God delivers them though from Egypt. Eventually in the book of Esther, we read about it, there's this decree to destroy the Jews. God intervenes through a brave young girl. We see that Satan is behind the slaughter of the innocent babies at Bethlehem when Jesus was about to be born. And you could fill in the gaps and just name more and more of these. The enemy is enraged and has always been after the Messiah. What we see, though, now is because Jesus died, because he rose from the grave in victory over evil, sin, and death, the enemy's rage is now not no longer against the Messiah, but against the mission of the Messiah. And this is point number two. We see the enemy's rage against the mission. Read verse 6 with me. It says, the woman fled into the wilderness where she is, has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. So here you have the woman who represents the covenant people of God. She flees to the wilderness to a place which was prepared by God where she'll be Nourished and fed for 1260 days, which, by the way, is the same period of time that she is given to, uh, to, to, to be a witness to the world, which we, we saw in chapter 11. But we, we don't necessarily see the reason for her fleeing or, or much of elaboration there uh, in verse 6 until verse 13. So in going to skip a few verses. Go down to verse 13, where John elaborates on what was left unsaid in verse 6. You see that the dragon, enraged by his failure to destroy the child, now turns all his passion against the woman. Verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now remember, the woman here represents God's covenant people. In other words, the woman represents the church. God's covenant people in the Old Testament, the church of the Old Testament was the nation of Israel. God's covenant people under the New Covenant, from the New Testament on, including today, is the church. That's us. So the woman here represents the church, God's people. And then in verse 14, it says, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. All right. Now, here's where it helps to remember this basic Bible principle that we keep repeating throughout this series, right? You're probably sick of hearing me say it by now, saying it by now, but, but it's this principle that the text could never mean for us, would have never meant for them back then. Now, why do I say that right here for this verse? It's because if you grew up in most American evangelical non-denominational churches, Uh, in the last hundred years, right, if you have any sort of church background here, any sort of dispensationalist background, you were probably told that here is where the United States of America finally shows up in the book of Revelation. Our great nation is mentioned, where you might be like, where is that? Where it says right there in, in verse 14, the two wings of the great eagle No joke. No joke. All right? One of the most predominant uh, dispensationalist teachers who influence a lot of teaching, like over the last uh, century, Hal Lindsey, says that this right here is where the gray eagle, that's where America comes in. And he says that that is, that what's being described here is a massive airlift operation of a U.S. aircraft, where the Israelis in the last few years of the tribulation were going to get picked up, saved by America, and taken over to the hidden city of Petra. Now, would that make any sense to the original audience of this letter? No. No. Because unfortunately for them, the only categories for interpretation they had were biblical ones. They would have realized that 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 phrase, like that teaching for what it is. Right now, look, I don't I don't like to speak like disparaging of like other people, but like anyone who says that this is America in verse 14 is a clown, all right? Is a total clown. Right? What's being described here, and the only way way that the best way to know what's being said in the book of Revelation is by having a clear understanding of the old testament. And anybody that has a basic understanding of the Old Testament narrative would be able to see that what's being described here is using imagery and symbols and language from the Exodus story. Because in the Old Testament book of Exodus, who is likened to a dragon? I mentioned earlier, Pharaoh. What country is the enemy of God's people? Egypt. And what is the place God's, or God provides for protection after the Exodus? The wilderness. The wilderness. And so, with that imagery, God is making a point of how the same way that he saved and delivered and protected his people before through the Exodus story is the same way that he's going to deliver and protect the New Testament church under persecution. Now, with that imagery, did God speak when referencing, um, where where is it that he he spoke in referencing to the deliverance of his people out of Egypt? It's uh, in Exodus 19 verse 4, you see, it says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's the imagery that's being used. That's the imagery. Is this an airlift operation with Apache helicopters? No. It's an illustrative way to talk about God's own deliverance of his people and how he will take care of her. He says three and a half times, where where he says right there, um, for a time and times which the way that literature worked back then, when you say a time and times, that means two times. And then, uh, so times equals two times and a half a time. So that's one plus two plus a half. So that's three and a half times. That phrase, a time and times and a half a time, is taken straight out of Daniel chapter seven. And in Daniel chapter seven, it's referring to the time where there was this violent Jewish oppression happening under the Syrian king of Antiochus Epiphanes. In the book of Revelation, these times of persecution, three and a half years, three and a half times, was used to do refer to the time between the two comings of Jesus, between his first coming, which has happened in our history, and his second coming, which has yet to happen in our timeline. And so... What he's saying, if you're tracking with me, is that uh, basically God is going to, from the time that Jesus first came to the time that he's going to return, between those two times, which is symbolized by three and a half times, between those two bookmarks, God is going to keep his people safe. Regardless of what violence happens against them, regardless of what persecution happens against them, he will keep them safe. He's talking about the tribulation. Some people you may have heard have taught that the tribulation is a future time that is like seven years. We don't believe that because John begins the book saying, I'm your fellow companion in the tribulation. The tribulation is right now. The tribulation was back then. We continue to describe this as the tribulation until Jesus returns. Now, when the woman is hiding out in the wilderness, she's protected in a place prepared by God. What does that mean? You see, once the woman is in the wilderness, does that mean because she's protected by God that there's no more suffering? <laughs> does that mean there's no more suffering, right? Like, what, what do you think? Have Christians suffered throughout history? So it can't mean there's no physical suffering, right? Like, what, what would a Russian Christian tell you right now? What would a Chinese Christian tell you? Or a Nigerian Christian? Or a Pakistani Christian? Or a North Korean Christian? They'd say, no, we absolutely do experience suffering. Suffering. You see, the dragon's pursuit of the woman, the church, and God's protection of them are happening simultaneously. It's not that the dragon can't cause her suffering, it's that the dragon can't destroy her through that suffering. Does that make sense? So it's not that the dragon can't cause some type of suffering, but it's that the dragon can't destroy her through suffering. Praise God. Thanks, Michael. I want you to notice the resilience of the dragon in verse 15. It says, uh, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman. So he just doesn't give up, right? He keeps going after her and going after her. And it says, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. He's trying to exterminate the church. That's that's what's being told here with Old Testament language. Nearly every line of Revelation 12 is taken from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the enemies of God are frequently described as an incoming floodwaters from which God delivers them. Throughout the Psalms, enemies are described as raging waters from which God delivers them. Continue reading in verse 16. It says, but the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Again, this is language straight from the Exodus. Right? Like God opens it up and so he swallows, the earth swallows the river. Like that's that's exactly how the crossing of the Red Sea is described after it happened. The next... We see in verse 17, it says, The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So here, the women and her offspring refers to the church back then and the church throughout the ages. That tells us that not only in the first century, but even today, even in this age, the church will be relentlessly pursued by her enemy, the devil. Look, this is important for us to recognize that because the devil has been defeated, but he hasn't been utterly destroyed. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how we live between the now and the not yet. And so there are, is a sense into which, like, yes, we experience victory over the enemy now because of what Jesus accomplished through his cross and resurrection. But there's still a sense into which it's not yet fully realized. Yes, we sin no longer is our master, but we will also still be tempted by sin. We'll, we'll still we'll still fall into sin at times. The difference is that instead of loving our sin, we're going to hate our sin. The difference is that now we get to repent and, and enjoy grace when we do sin. You see, the dragon hasn't been defanged so that he can't do battle against a believer. But it is true that he cannot hurt us spiritually. He can't hurt us spiritually. He can't take our faith away. He can't take our hope away. He can't take our eternity away. His antics might take our life away on this side of death, but he can never take the reward that comes after. See, if he can't have the Christ then this dragon will redirect all his efforts toward the church. That's what he's doing. That's what he's done. And so we find hope now in point number three, where we read about the enemy's ruin. The enemy's ruin. Verse 7 says, we're going back now to what we skipped. In verse 7, it says, a war rose in heaven, Michael, the archangel, and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, what does that mean? John actually tells us in the next verse. He mentions it three times. Verse 9, it says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. What does it mean that Satan was thrown out of heaven? Uh, We read about it in verse 10. It says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have, have been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God. Notice he says, at this point when the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ have come. Which is what we read about last week, right? The end of all time, when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of God and of his Christ, at that point in history, the accuser, the enemy, Satan, the devil, will be thrown down to never rise up again at the time that the kingdom of God is fully here. You know that, that name, Satan, or pronounced originally, the Satan. It means adversary. It's a legal term that would be used for someone who brings an accusation against another person in a court of law. And so we see these glimpses of Old Testament scenes where Satan tries to bring an indictment against God's people. It's what we see in Job, right? Satan tells God, hey, look, this Job guy, this righteous man, he's just a hireling. The only reason he's, he's, he's working for you, the only reason he's living for you is because you give him stuff. And so he says, take it all away and let's see if he still follows you. Or in Zechariah chapter 3, Satan lobs these accusations against Joshua. Satan is the great accuser. Before God, he stands Looking at us on the other side as undeserving sinners, and Satan says, How could you forgive these people? How could you forgive these rebellious people? And then he turns to us and he says, You're not much of a good person, you're not much of a Christian. I see through you. I see, I see through your front, through your mask, through your posturing. You don't deserve heaven see, prior to the death of Jesus, it would seem like Satan would actually have a pretty airtight case against us. Right? Like Satan looks at me and says, you're not much of a Christian. I see through you. You don't deserve heaven. It's like, dude, I, I know my heart. I know that I don't deserve heaven. I know that sin pervades the layers of, of, my, of my thoughts and my deeds. And so prior to the death of Jesus, it would seem that there, there would be an airtight case against us. And so is there any hope? Is there any hope that we have to overcome his accusations? The good news for us in this text is that, yes, there absolutely is hope. How do we overcome? First, look at verse 11, by the blood of the Lamb. He says, and they have conquered him, speaking of the church, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. Isn't that fascinating? It says that we, the church, have conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb. What does that tell us? You see, the dragon, he's right. We are sinners. I am an undeserving sinner. He's right about that, but He's also wrong because there is a savior who has dealt with our sin. The blood of the lamb is grounds for rendering the accusations of the devil obsolete. God now says to Satan, my son, died for them. You want to know how I can love these rebellious peoples? Because my son died for them. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He's the propitiation of their sins. He absorbed the penalty of their sins. Their debt has been paid in full. Because of Jesus Christ and our attachment to Jesus Christ, by faith, we have overcome him by the blood of the lamb. Secondly, we overcome him By the way that we live the truth. Verse 11 continues it says, and by the word of their testimony. So we've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Because the best counter to a lie is the truth. And so we don't hide our sin, we seek to have it exposed. Jesus once said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the Christian, more than anybody, more than anybody should be able to live without having to put on a mask, without having to flex and put on a front because we live the truth. Lastly, we overcome him by remembering his victory over death as they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death this is a way of saying that those who belong to Jesus they know that death is not the final word death is not the worst thing that can happen to us the worst thing that can happen is that we turn our backs on Jesus. That's why Paul's able to say, to live is Christ, but to die, man, that's gain. That's gain. I can't lose. Because if I live, I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to make much of him. If they kill me for it, I get to be with him. That's gain. You can't lose. That steals the sting of the enemy. That counters the sting of death. Verse 12 says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. You see, the rage of the devil is driven by one primary goal. And that's to pursue. He knows that he, can know he can't kill the Messiah. He already learned that. And so his primary goal now is to pursue the Church of Jesus Christ with such aggression, with such vigor, that he hopes that she, the church, will forsake her allegiance to him. You see, Satan attacks, his attacks against the church are grounded in the fact that he's already been conquered. He's already been defeated. He's already been shamed. So don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. He knows that his time is short. That's what the verse says. The devil's coming down. He's trying to stir up the world. He's trying to turn us away from Christ because he knows that his time is short. So we're now free to wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil knowing that we will get the victory. In the words of John Davenant, an old Anglican reformer, he said, those who are vanquished are always more angry than powerful. You think the devil's scary? Well, Those who are vanquished are always more angry than powerful. He's got no power. He's angry. He's vicious. He's aggressive. He'll accuse us. He'll deceive us. Or try to get us to turn our backs on Christ. Man, he's got no power over you. He's got no power over you. To surrender the confession of our faith is to yield to an enemy that is already on death row awaiting his sentence. Yes, there's a real enemy. Yes, he can cause real pain and suffering, trauma. But no, he will not overcome you. He cannot take your hope. He cannot take your faith. He cannot take away your eternal life and joy. He will not overcome you because he's already been overcome. And because of that victory, That we have in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can sing the words boldly that we sang earlier this morning. That when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there speaking of Jesus who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to so look on Him hard in me.
0: Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.